I'm Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. For decades, June has been synonymous with pride festivities in the Bay Area, and this month just got a little sweeter for celebrants. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that federal law prohibits employment discrimination against people based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. Even though such discrimination was already explicitly illegal in 27 states, it was still a historic victory made even more surprising because the majority opinion was written by a Trump appointee to the court. It was a statement on just how far this country has come on issues surrounding the civil rights of LGBTQ identifying people. San Francisco, of course, has long been a haven for the queer community, and joining me to talk about the state of civil rights in the community is Ryan Cost. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing today? Hi, Audrey. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. So um, you cover a lot of issues surrounding the LGBTQ community in San Francisco. What has the reaction been from your point of view to the Supreme Court decision? Sure. Well, I think locally you saw the usual reactions. We had really positive reactions and tweets from our Mayor London Breed, from Scott Weiner, from supervisors like Matt Haney. The National Center for Transgender Equality called it a watershed moment. As you pointed out, California has already extended these protections to LGBTQ residents, but this goes further in you know extending this right to the rest of the states. And essentially what the court said was this Civil Rights Act of 1964, which explicitly outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, can also be read to include a person's gender expression or gender identity or sexuality. Um, and the way the court got there, I think, is kind of interesting. They, they laid out one pretty um, clear example, which is that if you were to have a holiday party for your business and two people came with their wife, one was a man with his wife, one was a woman with his wife, you can't fire that woman based on her sex just because she has a wife. So, so that's kind of how they got there. They got to that same um, conclusion, applying sort of a transgender identity as well, essentially saying that a person who was assigned male at birth couldn't be discriminated against for identifying as a woman if a person who is identified as female at birth um, now identifies as a woman too. So essentially, they're, they're taking it back to the person's sex um, and not so much what they're doing. That's interesting. And, you know, we've had um, over the last 20 years or, you know, even after over the last decade, so many landmark rulings um, that affect the civil rights of gay people and trans people. Um, I, I wonder what does it what does put this ruling in context to all the other ones? And specifically, I guess I'm, I'm talking about gay marriage was such an amazing thing. It started really with, you know, a lot of the groundswell with Gavin Newsom when he was mayor, marrying couples in City Hall and that fight about how aggressive the legal fight should get to demand marriage equality. How does this one compare to that long running uh, legal fight? Well, I think, you know, if anything, I, I don't know if this will get quite the big banner headlines that gay marriage did just because that fight was so long coming and so visible. But part of that was because a lot of it was really driven, I think, by people who kind of had the privilege of 
making marriage the thing that they were most concerned about. And you saw a lot of discourse around that in the queer community. With this, when it comes to employment, that's something that's kind of essential to working. I mean, essential to living. So, you know, as much as a gay person deserves to have the same rights as a straight person, marriage wasn't exactly essential to a life. You know, a job definitely is. So to now say to gay and trans people that you are insured a job regardless of, you know, your sexuality or your gender identity, I think it's just a really, really big statement in support of the community and a, you know, a, a huge right to sort of have enshrined at the national level. I really, I really like how you put that because I think it, there, whether you intended it or not, there, are, there are echoes in what you just said um, in the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that we're seeing a- across the country too, and and I think it's, I-, I feel like in the last six months or so, we've really gotten to a point where we're discussing really core fundamental issues um, about privilege and about what it takes to have a pursuit of happiness in this country. And to your point, you know, marriage is is nice, but, you know, how you are able to make a living for yourself and your family is very core to the American dream. And and that that's also what the justices seem to say in this opinion, even though it was written by a majority conservative court. Yes, exactly. And yeah, I, I can imagine that this will probably go down in the long scope of, of queer history as, as maybe a broader win for everybody or, or just a more fundamental win in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the other really interesting thing is it comes right on the heels of the Trump's administration's brand new rule that was kind of narrowing the legal definition of sex discrimination. Um, I've read a few things that say that this could potentially put that new rule in jeopardy. Um, so that's probably something else that, that trans people are celebrating today. So in San Francisco, we always have taken a lot of pride, I think, in in trying to claim some identity as as the uh, as the gay capital of of the United States. It's been something that's very fundamental to um, to our city's political history and our cultural history. It feels like that you know that original creation of the gay community and the co- the political coalescing of the community in San Francisco came out of a level of um oppression that was was so overwhelming for people that this was a haven for for gay people and now as we get more of these victories and it becomes more and more quote unquote mainstreamed is is can we still say that San Francisco is the gay capital of California and the country? I think um, sometimes we get kind of caught up in sort of titles like that. I don't know if it's super helpful to frame it as San Francisco being the key, the gay capital specifically. Certainly, I think it's still, you know, one of if not the most LGBTQ friendly cities in America. Um, I was thinking when we were talked about this this recording before. Um, the Stud, San Francisco's longest gay bar, which recently announced their closure. Um, they hope to reopen, but for now they're closed. When they had their announcement, they had a, a city supervisor there at the uh, at the um, press conference. And I, I think it's really special, you know, to see that there is just such institutional support behind um, the queer community, behind its institutions. And I, I think that's something that we still have that is fairly unique. I think Two, when we live in a place like San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York or Portland, Seattle, um, 
we do live in these bubbles and we forget that it is not so, it's not the case everywhere. And I mean, I think even coming back to this case, um, it was it was essentially put on the Supreme Court's docket by two gay men who asserted that they were fired for their sexuality and a trans woman who asserted that she was fired for her gender identity. So this is still stuff that's happening. I do think it's important to note that this doesn't impact public accommodations. So that means places like theaters, shopping centers, restaurants, medical centers, even public transit and public parks. We don't allow discrimination in those areas in California, but that's still not the case in dozens of states. So whether or not San Francisco is, you know, the only haven for gay people, there's still plenty of work, I think, in other states. Um, and it's important for us to recognize just how how good we have it here. Maybe could you talk about what the importance is of having such a politically vibrant and really a very visually um, distinctive area for, you know, we have the Castro. It's very, the the sidewalks are painted in rainbows. The street posts have rainbows on them. All of the stores, or it seems like a lot of the stores have double entendre names to them. How important is it to the community to have a place like the Castro, even now when we're winning such major civil rights victories? When there's sort of the historical importance of it all, of course, and, you know, there's the Castro, there's also Soma, which is our leather district. And then we have in the Tenderloin, we have a transgender cultural district as well. I think, you know, the intention behind that is to essentially say to these communities, you're valid, you have homes, you have a history, it runs long and deep. And I, I think it's really important for that to be recognized. I think it does a lot for a community's self-esteem, also for its, you know, sheer political power in pushing forward, you know, future reforms and future recognition. Um, and also, yeah, just, just marshalling public support as well. I want to ask you specifically about pride um, and and about the future of the civil rights fight for gay people. Um, but first, let's take a break. I'm speaking with writer Ryan Cost. We'll be right back after this. Ryan, before we went to break, um, we were we were talking about the importance of the the history of the gay community in San Francisco and having a recognition of that. And certainly, one of the things that the community comes together and celebrates every year and is always, it, to me, it's always amazing to look back on the history of it is, is pride. And this year, we're all told to stay inside. And that is the opposite of what pride has always been about. So what's, what's pride looking like this year in San Francisco? Well, I think as with most everything else, pride is going online. Um, so the main event that we have coming up is going to be on the weekend of June 27th and June 28th. That's a long list of local and out-of-state drag performers and musicians. Uh, the, the big event is Big Frida, and she's known as the Queen of Bounce. She thankfully knows how to work a broadcast. She started her own reality television show for six seasons, so I think you know she'll know how to be very vibrant on camera. What um, is that? I'm, I feel so uncool. What is the queen of bounce? What does that mean? Yeah, bounce music is a sort of, um, is is just a, oh God, how would I describe it? Explain it for us old people, please. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sometimes you need to hear it to know, but um, bounce music is a style of New Orleans hip hop music, um, which is said to have, I guess, come 
as early as the 1980s, but it was popularized, you know, in the 2010s, especially. And um, yeah, it's just a lot of um, hip hop beats with a lot of moving um, your behind. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bouncing. A lot of bouncing. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I distracted you. So, so we're going to have online performances. I still see, you know, I drove by a house in um, on the border of the Mission in Castro today, and it was decked out in rainbow flags. It was looking great. Um, do you think that the community loses anything from not having the public events? Well, yeah, I'm sure. I can't imagine, you know, things being as vibrant or dynamic online. I think that's just the truth of the case. Um, we will, I, I should note, there's a lot of um, events going on. And my colleague, Jose Bastidas, put a much um, longer list together for date books, which should be online this week for readers. Um, and there's also a uh, ongoing sort of monthly um, talk series that they're hosting in partnership with the Commonwealth Club. The next one's on June 25th and is a celebration of this year's Pride Awardees. But yeah, I think absolutely we're going to lose something in not having that, that live element. I also think that this could be a time for some introspection. And I, I think that was going to happen anyways, given our, our current protest movement. That, of course, is impacting um, Black and Brown LGBTQ Americans just as much as, you know, non-LGBTQ Americans. So, yeah, I think there is that level of introspection that's happening. And, and maybe, you know, a smaller pared-down pride was in order anyways. Why Why do you think it's an, a time for introspection in that way and that toning it down was a good thing? I think in part, you know, we have to consider the history of pride, Um we like to say, or, or the queer community likes to remind people that Pride began as a riot. It's a reference to the 1969 uprising at Stonewall, um, where people basically fought back against the police who were harassing gay and transgender drinkers at a, at a very much loved bar there. And Pride continued as a very political sort of event, um, something to commemorate what had happened, but also to push increasingly for more rights. And of course, I think in recent years, you've seen Pride become pretty commercialized. And that's a conversation that's been, you know, discussed, you know, in the past five years. I think every single year I see it come up. Should should police be present at Pride? Should we have sponsors at Pride? You have things like the Dyke March and the Trans March do their own non, um, non-commercialized events, I think, to kind of get back to that original protest movement. And I think you know, it's really hard to celebrate for a community when you can also see other communities being beaten down and hurt by the same people that you were up, the, the same people that you were rising up against and that you're kind of commemorating this time of year. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I'm always struck by the first pride um, parade that I went to in San Francisco was, you know, when I first moved here, it was before gay marriage was even even seemed like a political possibility to very many people and it still did have a very much of a a little bodier and a little um uh, you know a little more risque maybe feel to it and then as the civil rights issues started coming to the fore it became very it felt very political to me and then there was a point where it became a family event I feel like really around the time 
of the gay marriage fight, people started bringing out their families because it was an issue of of marriage and of families and of love. And it became um, this thing where my child's school marched in it in support of all of the gay families that he goes to school with. And and now it's sort of is is there a protest left to have at Pride or is it just going to be a community event and not a political one in the future? You know, that is honestly a tension that you can see out there. I think it wasn't too long ago, maybe a few days ago, that Twitter had kind of erupted in this little firestorm of, you know, should Pride be family friendly or should it be the place where you are a little bit more risque in body or whatever? Or should it be, you know, an out and out Black Lives Matter protest? And in New York, you saw just over the weekend, um, God, I think it was 15,000 people came out in support of Black trans lives, which was pretty incredible to see the photos. And I think you have a lot of tension within the gay community. You know, which way do we go with this? But but that is a tension that exists and that is a conversation that's ongoing. So where do you think, where do you think it will end up in, in five years? What kind of pride will we will we be looking at? And and in a larger sense, where do you think the next what's the next uh, frontier for gay civil rights? What else needs to still be resolved? Sure. Well, I can't imagine that we'll lose the big festivities. And I would imagine that if, you know, coronavirus is gone next summer, that we'll probably have a very big celebration for the return to normal for Pride. Um, but I think you'll keep seeing these conversations ongoing. As for sort of the next fight, I guess, again, to go back to some of what I said earlier, the same disparities that affect Black and Brown communities more broadly also impact trans and gay Black and Brown people. So one example, I think, is the other ongoing pandemic, which is HIV AIDS. That's still a huge and growing problem for certain populations in the United States, even as we make huge strides elsewhere. So for example, in 2018, Black Americans accounted for 13% of the U.S. population, but they accounted for 42% of new HIV diagnoses in the United States. Um, When you talk about medication for HIV AIDS, such as PrEP, which is a prophylaxis, you have much higher usage in coastal states than you do in the deep south. So I think there are those things that are kind of, you know, healthcare rights that pertains to sort of minority rights, but then also to sexual and transgender rights. Um, And I think you'll continue to see the same fights for, you know, equality for trans people, healthcare access for them, um, protections for them in all sorts of different venues as far as securing housing, jobs, um, public space protections, those sorts of things. And the last thing I want to ask you about, we write a, a lot at The Chronicle about uh, beloved institutions that you think will be there forever. And you mentioned earlier about the stud closing its its current location. Hopefully they'll be able to reopen somewhere else. But we've also had the Lexington close, um, a lesbian bar. And, um, you know, it, it seems like some of these places are really struggling. What do you what do you think the the future is of these these gay institutions that we think are just going to be with us forever? Gosh, that is a really tough question. And it's one I've thought about a lot because in my time at the Chronicle, I've written a lot of obituaries for institutions. <laughs> the, the Lexington was the first. Um, I've also written about Nob Hill Theater, which was a gay male review. Uh, about the stud a lot and some some others. I think, you know, 
the one thing that San Francisco has going for it is a really strong institutional support for these places. Again, you saw Matt Haney at the Studs press conference, and he vowed, along with Scott Wiener, to make sure that the stud would reopen. Another heartwarming story I just saw was Aunt Charlie's, which is the last gay bar in the Tenderloin, recently raised $100,000 in a single week from donors to keep that place going until the pandemic lifts. So, So you do have a lot of support. I think it's also natural for places to close after a time, nothing lasts forever. And I, I think the community realizes that. But, you know, I, I don't think that they're going to give up these spaces without a fight either. You have to support what you want to see survive. That's that's what we keep telling everybody. Yeah, so. exactly. Ryan, I hope you have a very happy Pride Month. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Audrey. It's always good talking to you. I'd like to thank writer Ryan Koss for being with me today. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.